Well, I'd never played baseball other than playing with my friends, never played organized baseball. So my very first baseball game, I'm just about to get on the plate, just anxious to get up there and swing away. And my, uh, my coach pulls me aside, and he says, Paul, listen. Uh, he says, you're the shortest guy on, out here. And so what I want you to do is I want you just to stand at the plate. I don't want you to swing because this pitcher will probably walk you. So I took my bat, I got up to the plate, tapped my cleats, and stood there. First pitch went by, sure enough, over my head. Like I'm like four foot four, you know, something like that, if that. Next pitch, same thing. Next four pitches, I walk. That's fine. The problem was, I thought what my coach meant was, Paul, whenever you get up to bat, don't swing. So for an entire baseball season, I would come up to the plate, I'd tap the plate, tap my cleats, and stand there and watch the ball go by. Sometimes I walk, as pitchers and other coaches, I guess, got the idea, probably more times than not, I struck out. The sad thing was my poor, dedicated father, who, you know, that kind of the hockey dad gets you up at four in the morning to go play at six, and, you know, he just, would, he just you know, poured into me in sports. He came to these baseball games, and he'd sit in the bleachers. And once in a while, I just hear, Paul, swing! <laughs> and after the game, I'd have to explain to him and say, Dad, my coach said not to. Now, I didn't realize my coach had probably just said for that particular game at the beginning of the season, don't swing. All I heard was, don't swing. So I never swung. And my dad never came back to another game. And I only played one year, if you call that playing, and that was the only time I ever played baseball. And I never swung once at the ball. All the other guys were having fun. All the other guys were doing their thing. And I was just either an easy out or a walk. That's all I did. You know, I think for some of us sometimes, we feel that way in our walk with Christ. We feel that way as Christians. We know there's a game going on. Sometimes we look around and we see people who seem to be in the game they're having a good time. There's tears going on in the crowd because of their participation. But sometimes we feel like we're, kind of, we're in the game, but we're not really in the game. You know, we want to be there. We got the jurors. We kind of look like the other people. But at the end of the day, as believers, we just kind of stand there at the plate. But we never experience the crack of the bat. We never experience the cheers of the crowd. We just kind of come and we stand there. Maybe here are some other stories, other testimonies. That's, that's wonderful. But then we kind of go back home. And it's not necessarily because we don't want to be in the game. Sometimes it's because of something that's been spoken into our life. Maybe somebody else, or it could even be ourselves, our own voice, something that we have believed about ourselves, something we've said about ourselves that we're not good enough, we don't have what it takes, we don't have the personality, we've got too much baggage, we've made mistakes. Uh, kind of like Vera was sharing here this morning, here's my situation, how can I help anybody else? What do I have to say? And it's just kind of like pitch after pitch after pitch goes by, and we just don't feel like we're in the game. In Genesis chapter 4, there's an interesting story. <clears throat> we probably all know it very well. There's a story of Cain and Abel. Uh, Cain and Abel were the first two sons of Adam and Eve. And Cain and Abel were, were two young men who apparently, we, we have to kind of read into the story a bit, but they apparently had access to God. They equally had a relationship with God. 
whereby God could talk to them, they could converse with the Lord. And we read in this particular scripture that they were preparing an offering to bring to the Lord to have fellowship with the Lord. Now, they weren't bringing the offering to earn their way. An offering in the Old Testament, if you, you may be aware, the reason God instituted offerings was because of sin. Sin is what separates us from God, and sin was what separated them from God in that day. And so they were instructed to bring an offering to God, which, long story short, would be a representation of Jesus Christ, who would one day come himself be an offering, in order that by his shed blood on the cross, the penalty for our sin could be paid, we could be washed clean of our sin, and thereby, because of Christ, be worthy to come into the presence of God. Not worthy in the sense of earning it, but worthy in the sense of come before a holy God and not having to fear the judgment we deserve, not having to fear the wrath of God, but, but be welcomed into the presence of God and have wonderful fellowship with Him. So the offering or sacrificial system was put into place. And here's what we read in this story in, in verse 3 to 5. The Bible says, in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil, because he was basically a farmer, worked in the fields, as an offering to the Lord. Abel also brought an offering. He brought fat portions for some of the firstborn of his flock, so more of a shepherd, you might say. The Lord looked with favor on, on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Now again, there's nothing in the story that indicates that God preferred one over the other. I believe God equally loved them both. God equally blessed them both. They both seemed to have fellowship with God. They both seemed to be doing very well in their particular areas of expertise. Cain, of course, with the fields and a lot of bounty there. God blessed him and Abel with his flocks and so on. But when they came before the Lord to have fellowship with the Lord, the Bible says that God looked on Abel's sacrifice as having been done right. Abel's heart was right. He was engaged in what he was doing by way of worship, and God welcomed him. Cain, on the other hand, seemed to bring an offering that was not according to what God required to have that fellowship. And, and going by Cain's heart, it just seemed that Cain kind of had this indifferent, kind of throw it together, this is good enough kind of attitude. And God said, Cain, I can't accept that sacrifice. That will not enable you to come into my presence. It's, it's no good. But what Cain does is he takes offense to that. He becomes very upset. And the scripture says that he's actually angry at God. He's just, he's just kind of beginning to really get just, uh, and upset. Now, God is very quick to speak to Cain and to tell Cain, even though the way you're doing it is wrong, I want to show you how to do it right. I want to remind you how to do it right because I want to have fellowship with you. This is how you do it. And we read in verse 6, the Lord says, Cain, why are you angry? Why do you look so disappointed? Here's the key. You will be accepted if you do what is right. But hear me. If you don't do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. And it desires to have you. But you must rule over it. And Cain decides not to do what is right. He ignores God's counsel. He ignores doing it the right way, even though he knows what he ought to do. And instead, he gives in to this anger that he begins to wallow in and this self-pity. 
and he moves further and further away from God as he allows that resentment to build up so much so that he looks at his brother who I'm sure at one time he loved, but because his brother was received by God and because his brother seemed to be enjoying the blessings of God, it made him all the more angry to the point that he actually premeditates his brother's murder. And then ultimately, if you read down through verse 16, he actually leaves the presence of the Lord altogether to live in a land called Nod. That's that little place that some of you go every Sunday morning when the preacher starts. This little land of Nod. And what the word Nod means, interestingly enough, it means wandering. Just like, <laughs> I know what you mean, Pastor. My mind is wandering. It nods and it wanders. But it means wandering. And Cain actually and his offspring were the very first civilization that were actually strangers to God, who had drifted away from God and didn't know God ultimately at the end. This morning what I want to do is take a few moments to address uh, just really what I think the Lord has been doing in our midst, and, and I think what he's saying to us, uh, as you know, Vanessa and I are away for our anniversary for a couple of weeks, immediately following the kickstart weekend that we had, and then last Sunday our focus was the life groups, and so I wanted to uh, wait till this Sunday to speak a little bit, to share a little bit from my heart. And, and maybe to answer a few questions, but more importantly, I think, just to, to, to speak attitudinally towards some things that I think uh, the Lord would have us just kind of remind ourselves of or get hold of as we continue to move forward. Uh, for those who weren't here, uh, maybe those who were visiting this morning, uh, we had a special weekend. We had an evangelist, and his name was Torben Sondergaard from Denmark, uh, just a simple, humble man that God had raised up. Uh, just a, a simple churchgoer years ago, got kind of tired of traditional things and, and just felt through his own study of the Word and his own time in the Lord's presence uh, that the Lord wanted to restore to the church just the simplicity of believing the Word of God, that we are His people, we are His disciples, and we ever, wherever we go, we are called to be the presence of Jesus. Whether that means initiating a conversation to talk about the Lord and spiritual things and salvation, whether that means laying hands upon those who are sick and believing the Lord to set them free, or whatever it may be. And so it was really an encouraging weekend for the church to begin to believe the words of Jesus. In fact, we have been talking about these things for, for a number of months. Now, I know it's hard to remember sometimes from Sunday to Sunday what was preached on the week before. I understand that. We only retain, retain a small portion. But for those who are part of the Glad Tidings family, you may remember that back in 2006, January 2016, rather, that our theme for the year was Mission 16, M16. And we talked about being missional believers from the very beginning. We said we really want this year to be a year that we are intentional in our walk with Christ, of really desiring to grow in Christ in a personal way and not just keep him to ourselves, but experience more of Christ living and moving through us. And so we call it M16 or Missional Mission 2016. And in that opening, uh, opening week, we talked about what it meant to be missional as an individual and missional as a church. In the month of January, we talked about boot camp was our theme. We talked about what it meant to be disciples. In fact, when I went over my sermon files for this past year, I noticed that probably about 25 times we've been speaking on all different themes that have to do with what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a follower of Christ, what Jesus meant by that. We talked a little while ago about being done with doing nothing. You may remember some of these things we've been talking about. And that wasn't, I mean, that was intentional in a sense, but really it was just month to month, the Lord just dropping things in our heart to minister. 
But the point being this, that as we came up to this weekend, this was not just kind of a flash-in-the-pan week. I know somebody's coming, we'll we'll just kind of, you know, do what they do and move on. But very much, we feel, has been part of what the Lord has been saying to us as leadership, uh, as pastoral staff, as board, but also what the Lord is saying to us as a congregation. It's been said that you have to repeat something at least seven times in order for a person to even have a chance to remember it. It's been said that you have to repeat something at least seven times in order for a person to at least have a chance to remember it. It's been said, that, how many times? You guys are sharp. That was only twice. Okay, but that's true. And so there really is a lot of that when it comes to teaching. And not just teaching, but what the Lord is saying to us over and over again. He speaks these things in different ways for us to really get a sense of what he wants to do in our midst. And also discerning the days in which we live and what the Lord... See, see, I really believe what the Lord is doing in our hearts and what the Lord is doing in our midst coincides with what the Lord is doing in our community. It's not disconnected. When the Lord is moving and stirring and knows the hearts of people who don't know him, what is he doing? He's also trying to stir the hearts of his people to connect them in ministry to to the hungry hearts and the longing hearts and the broken lives that are in our community because we are called to be sent, aren't we? We're called to go and to bring in the harvest. So it's very much connected, I believe. And that's why, for example, many of you who have been going out have been maybe surprised to find that oftentimes you do have a warm reception. Oftentimes people don't mind you praying for them or having a conversation or whatever the case may be. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the Lord of our city. And and he's working in hearts and he's drawing people to himself. He sees behind closed doors. So one of our theme scriptures really has been Mark chapter 16, verse 17 and 18. And Jesus said that these signs will follow those who believe. And we talked about how important it is to be a believer who actually believes. And he says, in my name, they will drive out demons. In my name, they will speak in new tongues. In my name, they will lay hands upon the sick and expect them to be recovered. Those are the things that will happen in and through those who believe in me. One of the things I really appreciate about the weekend that we had, and this is not going to be a lecture on the weekend by any means, is that to me, for those who had a chance to participate or maybe didn't get a chance to take in Friday or Saturday, but you were here for the Sunday morning, and I, I trust you enjoyed that word. That was just a wonderful word on just hearing the voice of God and, and just again returning to what it means to pray and intimacy. But in any case, uh, that weekend for me was just a beautiful reaffirmation of things that we as Glad Tidings family profess to believe what we as Pentecostal people profess to believe. We believe that Jesus has come to save. We believe that we are called to preach the gospel everywhere, that we are called to evangelize. We believe that Jesus has come to set people free. And sometimes that involves the demonic. It doesn't mean you look behind uh, every bush for a demon, but it does mean we believe that demons are real, that they wreak havoc in people's lives. And when they rear their ugly head in Jesus' name, we simply confront them and we overthrow them. It's not a big deal. That's just what we're called to do. We believe as, as, as Pentecostal people that the Lord has promised to baptize us in the power of his Holy Spirit. We believe that along with salvation, Jesus has an experience for us that is so undeniably supernatural that we come to believe in the miraculous. We believe it. It's not complicated. We believe that. So a lot of these things that we've been ministering or, or over that weekend are things that we believe, but I think what's been so encouraging is there's kind of come a fresh expectancy to see the Lord do those things again. Would you agree? 
There's been an expectancy of when people come to Christ that it shouldn't be six months before you're baptized. It shouldn't be five years before you're baptized with the Holy Spirit. These are the things the Lord intends for us. And all of that stuff we're reminded by a dear brethren raised in the Lutheran church in Denmark. That's wonderful, isn't it? So God just, just in a wonderful way, I think, encouraged us. And I know, I know sometimes when it comes to the teaching or ministry style, there's some differences and nuances. But you know what? Who cares? Really. You know, we get, you know, let me say this once. I believe in the importance of doctrine. Okay, don't get me wrong. I believe that what we believe has to be founded upon the Word of God. But to me, the importance of doctrine is keeping us in truth. It's keeping us from error. The purpose of doctrine is not to keep us from one another in the body of Christ. Does that make sense? You see, there's just... Jesus Christ is the essence. He's the center of what we believe and all that flows from that in our relationship with him. But whether you're Baptist, Pentecostal, Lutheran, Catholic, whatever the case may be, we may have some different emphasis or nuances in some, in some areas of doctrine, but that doesn't keep us from fellowship. That doesn't keep us from learning from one another. That doesn't keep us from saying, thank you, Lord, for reminding me through somebody who maybe didn't grow up in my circles in whose life you're actually doing this. Thank you, Lord, for reminding me you want to do it in my life too. Anyways, not in the notes, but that's free. But what I really appreciate about the weekend as well is that the weekend was not at all about a man. The weekend was about every single professing believer being a minister of the life and power of Jesus Christ. That was really the focus if you had a chance to take in the weekend and it was real a blessing to see that again. Because you see, in our Western culture, and you can say amen if you agree with this or if you've noticed over the years, our style of ministry tends to be, I don't mean just here at Glad Tidings, but I mean when it comes to evangelists and all that kind of stuff, we tend to be much like our culture, and that is very much a celebrity-based style of ministry, don't we? We kind of tend to, you know, you got a need, whatever the case may be, you bring everybody up, I'm the special guest, I'll pray for everybody, and you just stand behind and catch them. Right? I mean, that's kind of the celebrity. You know, maybe we're getting noted that a bit now, but for years, that's kind of been the style. And so everybody else in the audience kind of stands back and goes, cool, praise the Lord. That was wonderful. And what I so appreciated about the ministry, uh, the, the ministry weekend was everybody lines up, and now the celebrity steps back and says, no, you go to it. And we're kind of going, yeah, you're right. Yeah. These signs shall follow all who believe in my name. They shall. And so it was very encouraging on a number of fronts. And some of you had the chance to uh, take in that weekend and really get stretched and, and to use the term kickstart it, which basically just means you kind of get out of the rut and into the groove and, and uh, experience some good things. We experienced some wonderful things on our team. Went down to the park and prayed for folks and saw sick folk healed and, and it was really good. Had a chance to share Christ with people. But in any case, um, so you may have had a great weekend or you may kind of got kickstarted, you know, a month ago. But now you kind of feel stalled. You don't have to raise your hand, but maybe you're here this morning kind of, I don't know, I'm kind of in a, you know. Or maybe you get a chance to take in the weekend. Maybe you were busy or you just weren't around at that time, and you're kind of wondering uh, how this all relates to you. I just want to share a simple word this morning that I think the Lord laid on my heart during our vacation. Um, when we were away, we had, a, uh, we had a couple weeks away. For those who didn't know, we, uh, we did a cruise for a week down out of Texas, and had a wonderful relaxing time, met some wonderful people. But uh, we had just come off the Kickstart weekend. And so I was really looking forward to getting away and having some rest, but I was also looking forward 
just to be available to minister. Well, we were on the cruise. <clears throat> we had all our luggage, all that kind of stuff, coming off the bus, and we're going up this gangplank. Now, to give you an idea of what I'm looking at, first of all, we realized shortly into the cruise that it's kind of middle-aged, older people on the cruise. So as you're kind of walking through the ship, there are a whole lot of canes and a whole lot of knee braces and a bunch of wheelchairs. I kind of go, Lord, what am I supposed to do here? Well, there's one particular lady, and uh, just seemed to be a sweet lady, and she was uh, going up the gangplank. Her husband was ahead of her a little bit. It was rather steep. I was kind of surprised how steep it was. And she's just kind of carrying her, uh, lugging her bag behind her, taking her time. And I noticed that her other arm just seemed to be incapacitated, kind of hanging there. My heart went out to her. And there's folks around, and you're all getting on, so there's not really time to do something there. But I thought, well, you know, I'm just going to kind of keep her in mind. She's kind of on my heart. So I was praying for her for, for a day or so. And I just thought, Lord, if I have the opportunity, you know, then I'm, I'm willing to step out and, and, and meet her, pray with her. And so I didn't see her for a day or so, but I think it was the second or third day. I saw her husband. Uh, he was in a cafe. And so I thought, okay, the husband's there. He's sitting down. That means she's shopping. So I went over to the husband and uh, just struck up a conversation, you know, just out of the blue and talked. And he was a nice enough guy. And we chatted for probably about a half hour. I'm kind of waiting for his wife to show up. So eventually, probably 45 minutes go by, and his wife shows up, and she sits down, and she remembered me from offering to take her suitcase for her, and so she sat down, and we talked for a little while. We were probably 15, 20 minutes in, so probably an hour has gone by altogether between talking to him and talking to her, and so finally, um, I didn't tell her what I did for a living or anything like that, but I just said, you know what, ever since I met you on, that, on the gangplank there, so I really, I just, my heart's, uh, I mean, you've just been on my heart, and I've just really, I've been thinking about you and praying for you, and I just really... Uh, would love to pray for you, if you wouldn't mind. And she's a little bit surprised, but she was very kind. And she said, no, no, that'd be wonderful, thank you. And she explained with her arm, and she had a surgery, and kind of threw the back in the arm, and she couldn't, couldn't use her arm at all. Uh, she was hoping it would recover over time, but couldn't use it. So in any case, now you've got to picture this. We're in the cafe there on the cruise ship, and there's people everywhere, and her husband's here. He smiles, but he's kind of looking at me, you know, and she's there. And uh, so I just took her arm into my hands, and I just prayed. I just simply prayed the name of Jesus. I just prayed for healing for the son. And you could just sense the presence of the Lord. And she was open. You could tell that she sensed the Lord's presence, too. She kind of got reverent and closed her eyes. And, and uh, anyway, so I prayed for her. And I said, so how do you feel? She said, well, I feel something, but I don't, I can't, I don't feel any different in my arm. I you know, can't lift it or whatever kind of thing. I said, okay. I said, well, I said, can I pray for you again? And so I prayed for her again, kind of the same way, and, and asked her again. She said, you know, kind of whatever, and um, but in any case, by this time, people are kind of starting to look at us, and, and I could tell that her husband's kind of getting a little uncomfortable, because, you know, this guy's got his, her, his wife's arm, and uh, praying together, and so on, and so we prayed a couple times, and again, she, you know, we just really felt the Lord's presence, but nothing happened to her arm, and so she just very kindly said, well, thank you very much for taking the time to do that, I really appreciate that, and I said, well, listen, I'm going to continue to pray for you through the week, and uh, just going to you know, when the Lord brings to my mind, I'm going to continue to pray for you. So gave her a big smile, and she gave me a little hug, and her husband smiled at me, and I went on my way. Then I went back into my stateroom, or my room, and I had one of those little conversations with the Lord that you have with the Lord sometimes. You know what I'm saying? Like when things don't work out quite the way you expect them to work out, uh, because, you know, you had a, a compassion, you felt, you, know, you felt conviction, you're going to pray for this person, and you step out on a cruise ship, everybody looking at you, you don't know this person from Eve, and you pray for them anyway, and, and it seems like nothing happened. And so, but what the Lord dropped in my heart that I want to share this morning, this may not be too profound, but I really felt at that moment that I had a choice to make. 
I really felt at that moment a potential despair, potential anger. Uh, not that I really felt anger, but maybe frustration, disappointment, whatever the case may be. I felt I really had a choice whether to wallow in what I understood, what I felt I saw, or my disappointment, and kind of pull back and say, okay, that's it. I'm just going to enjoy the cruise. Or I could turn to the Lord and say, Lord, thank you for your presence. As we ministered, thank you for what I know she felt as we prayed together. Thank you for even just on my part, the willingness, the boldness to step out and do that. Lord, I just pray that you would teach me. I just pray you continue to walk me along this journey in what it is that you want to do and continue to stretch me so that you can use me, as I know he even did at that moment, but can begin to see some of the things that I would really like to see. Does that make sense? Because I want to encourage us this morning in understanding, which I believe the Lord dropped in my heart, and I knew this anyway, but is this the Lord said, Paul, I just want to remind you, it's not about a weekend, it's about a way of life. It's about a way of life. Are you interested in walking with me in this way of life? Are you interested in continuing in this journey and being used by me and seeing things and, and sharing Christ and other things that you have the opportunity to do? And along the way, learn more about me, draw closer to me, grow in your faith. Are you willing to walk that way? Or are you going to shut yourself down because something didn't seem to go your way? Wallow in self-pity and just go back to the usual, if, if, there's, if that's the right term. My mind also went to Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, there's an interesting story of a man who had brought his child because he heard that Jesus is in the region. We learn in the story that his child had been tormented by a demon for many, many years since he was a young child. And so this man heard about this Jesus of Nazareth who can heal the sick and cast out demons and work many miracles. And so he heard he's going to be in a certain place. So the man brings his son looking for Jesus, confident his son is going to be healed and delivered. Well, when the man gets to that area... He's disappointed in seeing Jesus isn't there. But all of a sudden, his hopes get built up again because he sees who? He sees Jesus' disciples. Now, follow, follow carefully. He sees the disciples, and immediately it's, oh, okay, that's okay. Even though Jesus isn't here, I see his disciples are here, and I know if they are truly his disciples, they will be able to do what he does. So even if he's not here, that's okay, they'll do it. And so he brings them to the disciples, and they try, but this time it didn't work. And so the father's kind of like in a, you know, just, well, what's all this stuff I heard? If, if you can't do it, then I guess Jesus can't do it because you're a disciple, and the disciples like his master, they understood the rabbinical model of disciples back in that day. And so he just assumed it was going to happen. In fact, when Jesus arrives on the scene, the man's words to Jesus after he explains the situation, he turns to Jesus and says, now, Jesus, if you can do anything, please help my son. And Jesus, in love, snaps the man back in reality and says, if I can do anything, all things are possible to those who believe. And the man says, I do believe, I do believe. And it comes back to reality, help my unbelief. And in an instant, Jesus ministers to the child, the demon is cast out, and he goes on his way. In Mark chapter 9, we have the same story, but a little bit more information. And the reason I cite chapter 9 of Luke is because something happens in chapter 10 we'll talk about in just a second. But in Mark chapter 9, we have a bit more information, and it says that after this incident happened, 
when they were alone with Jesus, the disciples said to Jesus, Lord, why could we not cast it out? And then Jesus says, because this kind only happens through prayer. Some transcripts add the word fasting. Some of your Bibles will say prayer and fasting. And so the phrase this kind suggests, number one, that there are many different kinds of demons. And there are many different kinds of demonic activity. This kind, Jesus said. And the phrase only by prayer or prayer and fasting, to me when I read that scripture, it implies that the disciples had taken their authority for granted. They had gotten used to being around Jesus, seeing things happen, probably saw some things happen themselves, which I'm sure they did, inferring by the story here. But basically what they were saying was this. Jesus, why couldn't we drive it out? In other words, Jesus, when this man brought his demonized son, we did everything just like we did last time. But nothing happened. And when Jesus said, this kind comes out by prayer and fasting, I believe what Jesus was saying to his disciples is this. Well, you see, guys, that's where you got it wrong. Because what you were depending on this time was what you had done last time. It doesn't work that way. I don't minister that way. You see, the success or the fruitfulness of my ministry of what God does through me this time is not dependent on what I did last time. It's totally dependent on the freshness of my relationship with God right now. That's what is key. Jesus is saying, look, it's human nature to fall into a system. This is what I did. This is what I said. It worked last time, and maybe it worked this time. And don't misunderstand me. God is sovereign. God is gracious. God is teaching us. And sometimes it will happen again. But I believe that God in his wisdom and grace at times will say, it's not going to happen right now because I've got to teach you something. You're relying on what you have done. You're relying on what inherently is in you. That's not how it works. Everything that flows through you flows from me. You need to connect with me. It's about me. It's about your relationship with me. It's about the things I'm speaking to you about to clean up in your life, to consecrate to me, to give to me what it means to truly be a disciple of mine. I might even choose to take you through a season of your own suffering or sickness to teach you compassion and grace and strength and faith and perseverance, whatever the case may be. But it's about me. Get your eyes on me. If you get your eyes on me, the other stuff will take care of itself. And then we come to Luke chapter 10. So Luke chapter 9 didn't work. Luke chapter 10, we read of where Jesus sends out 60 of his followers, just disciples, along with the 12 intimates. So he has 70, some say 72. Another translation says 70. But there was, a, there was a, a, about 60 other people beside the disciples whom Jesus sent out just to do ministry. What I find interesting in reading this account is when they come back, here's what it says. They were beside themselves. They were ecstatic. They came back from the, you know, going downtown, doing ministry, and what they said to Jesus is this. They come with great joy, reporting, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. Now, I find that's very significant. Why, out of all the miracles they saw, they mentioned the demons? Lord, even the demons are driven out in your name. I believe what they're being very deliberate in the mention of that because it showed their genuine delight in having learned their lesson and gotten back on track. Do you hear me this morning? 
They said, Lord, here's the area where the enemy would have shut us down. Here's the area we got frustrated because it didn't work. But Lord, you reminded us how it does work. You reminded us what it really is all about. It's about you. It's about fellowship. It's about holiness. It's about consecration, perseverance, intimacy, cultivating a walk with you. That's what it's about. We got back on track. We went back out. And in your name, this time, they fled. I believe that's very important for us to lay hold of today here at Glad Tidings. Jesus was very happy for what they reported. You may recall Jesus also said, hey, guys, that's wonderful. Well, listen, don't get all excited about that. Get excited about what? That your name is written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. That's what you really want to get excited about. That's the real battle that's been won. What is Jesus saying? It's not that these things aren't good and, and you don't need to be used in those things. But listen, it's because of your salvation. It's because of your standing in Christ as a child of God that these things can happen. If you get tied up in these things, if you get, no, that's the wrong word, because I want us to understand Jesus validates the importance of the miraculous through a believer's life. Don't underestimate that. The miraculous oftentimes makes room for the message, doesn't it? You get somebody's attention by the power of God, a heart is open to, to hear about salvation. Jesus himself did that all the time in his first ministry tour, all the time. So there's nothing invalid about that. Don't let anybody ever tell you that it's not about that. It's partly about that. But the reason that is happening is because this has happened. And the reason that will continue to happen is because this continues to be priority. Jesus is the priority. The wonder of your salvation, the all, the glory of, of the transforming work of Christ within you, that is key. And if you keep the main thing the main thing, this will be the natural product. And if I could flip it around, I would say this. If this is not part of your life or ministry at all, where's this? Now, I'm not talking about getting all self-condemning and stuff like that, but I'm saying spiritually, mentally, as Pentecostal people, have we shut this down? Because, you see, I really believe when Jesus gets more of this, you begin to expect more of this. When Jesus becomes more real, you, you expect more of this. You see, that's why it's so important that we're, when we come to Christ and we're baptized with the Holy Spirit and we're introduced to the realm of the Spirit and the, and the beauty and the wonder and the power of God to save and to cleanse and to set free, well, we begin to expect this because we've experienced the love of God. And why am I the only one that should experience? You know what? Jesus loves you too and he, he can touch you and he can set you free and he can heal you or he can minister to you wherever you may be in your journey it doesn't mean everything always changes overnight but it does mean we can minister in the moment with the confidence that the lord has done something or begun something but he has used you as part of that and that's exciting too like vera shared in other testimonies we've heard of just those god moments that god has arranged and you realize the lord is really working through you to touch other people so the two really do go together let's just come back to cain and abel real quick here I see two different responses that I want to underline this morning that I want us to get hold of. There's one response that walks with God. There's another response that hardly ever receives anything from God. And keep in mind, God loved both these men equally, but one of them ultimately just drifted away from God. And what we see in Cain's story is Cain basically had a, I'm just going to use the term Christian, we know what I mean, but you know, kind of had, the, to me, speaks of the Christian life that's just, it's haphazard. You know, it believes, 
and maybe does some church stuff, or whatever the case may be, but it's, it's not really engaged in, in, a, in a conscious walk with Christ that's cultivating things, growing in things, being shaped. Cain kind of reminds me of a story in Malachi. Malachi was a prophet sent to the people of Israel who had been in the promised land again for 100 years. You remember the Babylonian captivity. Everyone was taken to Babylon. Well, Babylon was overthrown eventually by the Persians. The Persian king let the people of Israel, many of them, return back to the promised land. So about 100 years has gone by since coming back, but they weren't worshiping God the way they knew they were supposed to. And so God sent his prophet Malachi, namely to speak to the priests, to the spiritual leaders of that nation to say, listen, guys, God sees what you're doing going through all the ceremonies and the offerings here in the temple worship, but he, he wants you to understand, number one, you're not doing it right, your heart's not in it, and you've got to understand you're wasting a whole lot of time because he doesn't hear you. And he's not receiving what it is that you think you're doing that's just good enough for that. And basically what the priests were doing is this. When it came time to sacrifice a lamb, for example, they would go among the herd, they'd look among the sheep, and they'd say, oh, that's a nice one. No, we can't give God that one. That one's too pretty. That, that'll fetch a lot of money. Or, or here's a nice plump one over here. No, we don't want to give God that one because, that, I mean, that'd be a nice feast for our own family. So we're, we're going to keep that for ourselves. Oh, there's one over here kind of limping along, you know, in the corner there. I mean, it's probably sick. It's got cancer or something. It's not going to last much longer. You know, it's going to die anyway. Let's take that and give it to God. That's exactly what they were doing. And God says, hey, I don't want it. And this is what he says. I am your master, the Lord says. Why don't you respect me? You despise me, and yet you ask, how have we despised you? This is how. By offering worthless food on my altar. When you bring a blind or sick or lame animal to sacrifice to me, do you think there's nothing wrong with that? I love this line. Try giving that, an animal like that to your governor, to your boss. Would he be pleased with you or grant you any favors? That's a key word. Would he grant you any favors? Would he do anything for you? Would he in any way, you know, uh, show his favor upon you? What God was saying is this. Listen, people, what you're giving me is your leftovers. And if all you've got is leftovers, keep them. I don't want them. God said, go give it to your governor. Give it to your rulers. Give it to your boss. He said, imagine you taking one of those animals that are, half, you know, one foot in the grave to your boss and saying, hey, boss, I just want you to know. I really think a lot of you. You're a great man. You've given me a great job. I've got a good income, a nice home. I've got food on the table. I've got shelter. I've got you know, clothes in the back of my children. We're healthy. I just want you to know what a difference you make in my life, how grateful I am for you. Here you go. Here's this half-dead animal. What's the boss going to do? Not only is the boss probably going to throw it back at you, you're probably going to lose your job or your income, all that provision he has given to you, because it shows what you think of him. What God is saying is this. Hear me, saints. If you won't give your boss leftovers, why do you give me your leftovers? Why do you give God your leftovers? You say, well, Paul, what do you mean? We all do it. We give God leftover time, right? What's on TV? You know, you go through the guide six times, and there's 600 channels. Finally, when you realize there's nothing on, well, I guess I could crack open my Bible for a minute. 
Maybe there's something there. God says, I don't want it. If that's the case, I don't want it. We can give God our leftover money and resources, right? Pay all the bills, buy whatever toys or trinkets we feel like, maybe some new clothes, or in the case we've got a few bucks left. Well, let's see, Sunday's coming up, I ought to throw something in the plate. God says, keep it. Why? Don't insult me with your leftovers. Don't want it. He gets our leftover energy. We have a busy day. We have a busy week. You know, we speed through the day, whatever the case may be, and the whole time we're feeling like, you know, I haven't had devotions for a long time. I haven't had time with God. Don't have time. Don't have time. I'll just do this. I'll just do that. I'll just do this. And finally, maybe when we're dropping ourselves into bed, oh, well, I ought to whisper a little prayer. Or I ought to, you know, toss one up. I ought to say something. You know, even now I lay me down to sleep is better than nothing. But the fact is we're dead tired. And the Lord says, I don't want your leftover time. I want your quality time. Here's the key. If you want to receive anything from me, you've got to give me your best. You've got to give me your time. You've got to give me your energy. You've got to dedicate to me your resources. I don't want the scraps of your busy life. Give that to your boss and see what he thinks. In Malachi, if you read further, I won't read it this morning, but if you go on further, not only were they going through all the motions, not only were they doing things that meant absolutely nothing to God, but they actually said, you know, we're doing all this work for you, God, and it's wearisome. All that attention. Here's what we're doing for you, God. We're sacrificing all of these sick animals, and they actually used these words. They said, what a burden it is. And you're doing it wrong. And it's a burden, and you think that's a pious thing. I wonder how many of us wake up on a Sunday morning wondering if we feel like going to church. How many people wake up saying, I don't know if I feel like worshiping God. Maybe you stayed up late Saturday night watching a movie. Maybe it's a nice day. We'd rather do something else. Maybe the kids have sporting events on, so we have to go where they go. But I want us to notice the difference. And I believe this is what God is saying to Malachi. He says, my people do that all the time. And I know I'm preaching to the choir this morning on this because you're here. He says, my people do this all the time. It's Sunday, do I feel like, do I feel like? God wants you to do such and such, do I feel like, do I feel like? But let it be a weekday morning. And the alarm goes off at 6 o'clock or 6.30 or 7 o'clock. And there's a show through the house. Come on, everybody, you've got to get ready. We've got to be ready on time. I can't be late to work. Can't be late for this. Can't be late for that. What's God saying? What about me? I want you to feel that way on a Sunday morning. I want you to feel that way about things that I'm calling you to. I want you to understand the seriousness of, of the things that I want to do in your life. And when I'm laying those things upon your heart, I want you to have that same diligence. I want you to understand, if you really understand what worship is, you know what worship is? In a nutshell, worship is simply all of me ascribing to God all that he is. All that he is. You have all of me, Lord, and I ascribe who you are. The Lord says, listen, I want to have that same kind of passion. I want to be on your mind when you wake up. I want you to be just as committed to Sunday morning as you are to your work, nothing less. That's the attitude I'm looking for. And that's the attitude I believe we see in Abel, even though he lived a short time, dying at the hands of his brother. Abel, it says, was accepted by God as he brought the best 
portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. Paul said this. We know the scripture well in Romans 12. Will you read it with me? So then, my friends, do we have that scripture there? Next one. There we go. Let's read it together. So then, my friends, because of God's great mercy to us, I appeal to you, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God, dedicated to His service and pleasing to Him. This is the true worship that you should offer. What was God's great mercy to us? God's great mercy to you and me was the extravagant way in which he gave his son Jesus to us to save us because he so loved us. And Jesus didn't hold anything back. Philippians says, of his own free will, he gave up all he had. Now here's the key. When Jesus loved you and me, Jesus loved us sacrificially. Do we understand that? The Bible says his body was beaten beyond recognition. The Bible says that shards of metal were cut into ropes that were whipped upon his back that cut into his flesh and the blood flowed from the cross that paid for the penalty of your sin in mine. Paul says this, in light of such love, offer yourselves. Offer yourselves. Not just your mind. Not just an hour. Not just 15 minutes a day. Not just a chapter of the Bible a day if you're lucky. Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God. Read this line. Dedicate it. Read this line. Do we have the scripture up there? Dedicate it to his service. Now think about that. Offer yourselves to God. Dedicate it to his service and pleasing to him. This is the true worship that you should offer. Never mind the sloppy stuff. Never mind the leftover stuff. It's a waste of time. Oh, this is exhausting. Oh, going to church is exhausting. Then stay home. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir. You're all the good people, okay, this morning because you're here. But that mindset that gets in, in other words, what God is saying is this. Listen, in the light of what I've done for you, if you think you're doing me a favor, don't bother. Don't bother. Because not only are you not doing me a favor, but your heart's not in it. And I see your heart. I don't want it. I don't want leftovers. What this very simply means is this. The true worship you should offer is it means that wherever your lifestyle is not living for God, it needs to be cut away. Let's say it again. Wherever your lifestyle is not living for God, it needs to be cut away. God warned Cain in chapter 4, verse 7. He said, sin is crouching at your door. It wants to rule you, but you must overcome it. And one of the ways you demonstrate that sin is actually losing its grip on your life is if you are living in a way that actually sacrifices your lifestyle. We don't have time to get into that this morning, but let that sink in for just a moment. I know we're past noon. Please give me a couple more minutes. Let me ask you, do you worship your lifestyle or do you worship Jesus? Do you worship your Christian lifestyle, what you believe is good enough, God should be happy with, or do you worship Jesus and say, Lord, I am all yours. Lord, whatever disappointments I have, whatever's not going my way, whatever I don't understand, Lord, I'm going to stay here, I'm not moving. Lord, teach me, shape me, grow me, 
change me. I'm not interested in the Christian lifestyle. And friends, I'll say this, and again, I know you're all the saints here this morning, but I'm not interested in getting the people of God in and out of the church in 60 minutes. If anybody's interested in that, there's lots of churches who will do that for you, and I mean that in the kindest of way. We're here to meet with Jesus. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with 60 minutes, okay? That's a miracle in itself. I'm not saying there's anything wrong, okay? But I'm less interested in 25 minutes for this and three for that and seven for that. What we want to know is, Jesus, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? What do you want to say here? What do you want to minister here? Because we're here to meet with God. If we're not, God says, stay home. I don't need it. You're not doing me any favors. Do you realize I have angels in my presence day and night that are declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And you know what? You get to get in on that. So don't think you're doing me a favor. I've already got it. You just get to be blessed, be part of that. And it doesn't mean that it gives us license to go on forever. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But the reality, I believe, is most of us want to do more for God. The problem is we seldom want to change our lifestyle. But if you're going to be a ministering person, you have to make the lifestyle changes that will actually give you something to minister. And when Jesus sees that you're serious, as many people have been seeing, you'll be amazed by what he begins to do through you. And the Lord's been doing some wonderful things in our midst. He has much more he wants to do, many more ways he wants to stretch us. But he wants to have permission to come into our lives and to cut into those things he wants to cut away that will actually begin to free us and break away those things so that blessing can begin to flow through us. But again, friends, it's not about a weekend. It's about a way of life, a way of life in which Jesus is thrusting us out into the fields that are ripe and ready to harvest. And you may say, well, Pastor, what does that mean for me? What does that look like for me? I believe very simply, friends, it means just each of us determining to obey the Lord where we are every day, every moment. Uh, we have some wonderful Kickstart groups that, as you know, are, uh, are available to you. If you want to do some street ministry, and I encourage you to do that ultimately. You may not feel comfortable doing it right in now, but ultimately you ought to work toward that just to get a stretch out of your comfort zone. And that's not a weird thing. How many of us have been around long enough in church circles that there was a time that we actually organized groups to go into the streets and just evangelize? You know, when I was on staff here 30 years ago, every Saturday morning, we had about 15 people went door to door to invite children to come on the buses to come to Sunday school to hear about Jesus. We had groups that went downtown on a Friday night. Why? Just to start conversations with people to share of Jesus. So this is nothing new. It's nothing radical. It's something we all ought to do once in a while just to get stretched. And we can organize that. But here's what we can't organize. We can't organize those God moments that are going to happen when you say yes to Jesus and you just reach out to somebody at work, at the hospital, at the grocery store, on the street, at home, wherever it may be. Friends, this is not a program. I believe it's very simply a plan that God has just to reach people in our city who are hurt and broken and lost and need to know that God loves them. I'm going to invite the musicians to come back as we close off this morning. Last night, Six of us drove back from Boston. We left about 12 hours ago, actually, from Boston. Uh, we were down to watch a couple Blue Jay games. Go Jays. Down in Fenway Park. And I thought, thinking of this morning, I thought back to when I played baseball. Game after game, bat after bat, pitch after pitch.
That was my baseball career. And I watched these guys at Fenway getting up to play ball. And when they got up at that home plate, not one of them was planning to stand there and do nothing. Not one of them was planning to get struck out if they could help it, take a base. They all wanted to swing for the fence. You could tell, these big guys, they're just waiting for the right pitch. They're going to smash that thing over the fence. And every single time they made contact, the crowds went crazy. I mean, we had probably almost as many Blue Jay fans as, as, as Red Sox fans, so whichever team was hitting the ball, the place just went nuts. It was, it was great. And I thought as I saw that, we were sitting there with tens of thousands of people in the stadium full. And my mind went to Hebrews chapter 12. You know the verse well, right? Hebrews chapter 11 talks about all these men and women who had faith. They were ordinary people like you and me, but they believed God. And they held on to God, and they believed his promises. And God did some amazing things through them. And in chapter 12, it says in the very first verse, that in light of the fact that we, as we stand at the plate, we are surrounded by this great crowd of witnesses. And that great crowd of witnesses, they're looking down at us, and we're standing there, and we're nervous, and we think we're going to blow it. And somebody has told us we can't hit the ball. Just stand there. They'll walk you. You can't do anything. You're not in the game. And they're standing around there. They're shouting. They're shouting. They're shouting. They're saying, trust God. God is real. He came through for us. He did amazing things in our lives. Don't be intimidated. Don't let anybody shut you down. You swing for all your worth. Because he did it through us, and he can do it through you. And that's the great crowd of witnesses we have around us. And friends, wherever you may be this morning in your journey, I can tell you this, as a church family, one of the journeys we are on, it is just being Jesus where we are. It's just wherever we are, there's a need saying, Lord, you can make a difference there. You can, I, can, I can tell someone about your love. I can witness to somebody. I can pray for somebody. Just some of the testimonies you've been hearing about. But I want to encourage you. Because you can get discouraged, and you can think, but that's not me. I'm not that personality. I don't do those kind of things, whatever it may be. Or maybe you tried and you failed, and what happened? The devil comes and he says, look, see, I told you, don't swing. If you had just stood there and not swung, you wouldn't have been embarrassed. That's what he was saying to me on the cruise ship. Don't bother. Just sit back. Just enjoy your vacation. I'm glad to report. I, I didn't see anybody get healed. I prayed for a couple more, but I had a chance to talk to a lot of people about Jesus. And I really enjoyed that. That's good. It's good stuff. But he wants to shut you down. And he wants to do the same for every one of us here this morning. Whatever has discouraged you, he wants it to be like Cain. God, how come you didn't? Well, I guess you don't. Whatever the case may be. And we get angry and there's self-pity and we just clam up. But instead I want to say, Lord, your promises are true. What does the word of God say? In my name, for those who believe. Right? He said, in my name, these things will follow. These things will follow. And I want to encourage us this morning, friends. The Lord says, I take no pleasure in those who shrink back. He said, don't shrink back. Don't hold back. Don't pull back. He said, I've set you on a course. I've shown you a way of life. I've shown you a way of living. And I want to ask you, will you grow in it? Will you grow in it? Don't clam up. Don't shut down. Don't accept all the unbelief, all the rationale, all the lies. Jesus said, for those who believe in my name, these things will happen. You leave the results with me. It's a journey. I'm going to teach you things. You leave the results with me. You just go and do it. Amen? Just go and do it. Just go and do it. And I'll be with you. Amen? Let's stand together.